Hello and welcome. It's the Not The Top 20 podcast. Thank you to New Carnival for playing us in as ever. Check them out on all your online music platforms. They've got some great stuff out. Uh, I remembered my charger this time. We, we had this down for Monday night and uh, only to get to the studio and I'd left my charger at home. So I'm an idiot. I'm Ali Maxwell. Next to me, George Ellick. But we're here to give you a little bit of NTT 20 Pod Insight an analysis ahead of this weekend's playoff finals. A reminder for those tuning in that across the EFL leagues, we have Fulham versus Aston Villa championship playoff final on Saturday at 5pm, Shrewsbury v Rotherham on Sunday at 3pm and Exeter versus Coventry on Monday also at 3pm. And those are the games that we're going to go through today. Some fairly lively semi-finals, I think it's fair to say, although nothing quite matching last year's offerings. No penalty shootouts, no 6-5 aggregate scores, but certainly plenty to get into. And George, starting in the championship where you yourself were at the second leg Fulham derby and I was at the second leg Aston Villa Middlesbrough. So hopefully you can give a bit of insight into how those games went and, and how those teams are looking heading into the playoff final on Saturday. So starting with Fulham derby, Fulham the favourites going in to the playoffs, but a real setback in that first leg. Lost 1-0, bit of hand-wringing. You, you were pretty vocal. You, you weren't too worried about it. You, were, you felt strongly that they would come back in the second leg. At Craven Cottage, was it, what was that game like? How did it play out? I mean, it followed a pretty similar pattern to the first leg, really, where Derby set up uh, to defend as you'd expect them to, uh, defending a lead. Um, but I was really impressed with the way that Fulham didn't panic. They went in at half-time at 0-0. Uh, they sucked to their guns. There were times where I thought they set up They set up with too many men behind the ball with Kearney, uh, Johansson, uh, McDonald, all playing very, very deep indeed, considering uh, you know the, the derby back back eight or back nine. We're outnumbering the, uh, the front you know, three or four of Fulham. But having said that, you know, they stuck at it and, and they got the, the win that they deserved. I think there's a lot of talk about uh, Fulham's mental fragility after the first leg. Uh, and for me, that, that was always unfounded. They, they, they showed the back end of the, of the regular season that they had you know, the stones to get through uh, big games. And they showed it again here. I mean, I'm not convinced that they're going to win the final, but, but I do think it was a step forward. Um, and I think given the fact that they went in at halftime, uh, having not scored in three halves against Derby, um, but you know they, they got the, the win that they, they deserved. It shows a progress that, that maybe we wouldn't have seen from this Fulham team last season. Quick one on Derby before we dive into Fulham again. Do you think they could have done more? Uh, of course, they were very reactive to, to Fulham's style of play and very defensive, it's fair to say, and, and it was working for the most part. But in the second leg, did you leave with a sense that they could have done more or really that that was about as much as they could have expected and that that was the right way to, to set up? <laughs> I don't think necessarily they could have done more purely because I think that Gary Rowett understood that Fulham were a far better team than them um, and technically that they wouldn't have been able to deal with them and they probably would have conceded much you know they'd have conceded more goals more freely had they come forward and I think having it's also easy to forget that in both legs Derby looked very very good in the break so for that reason not necessarily I think that going into the the, the tie Fulham were heavy favourites for a reason and, and in the end that quality showed but 
I think if you told Derby fans that going into the, uh, the, the the fourth of four halves that they'd be ahead, they'd have taken it at the beginning. Do you think that there's a bit of talk about the, the small pitch at Craven Cottage versus the, the big pitch at Wembley? Always a bit of a cliche. I actually don't think it's that much bigger in terms of um, measurements as, as most normal championship pitches. But is that the type of thing that will suit Fulham's style of play? Or will it be, you know, are they so used to their, their style on their certain pitch in their certain stadium? Is that something that you would consider looking at the final? I think given their form since the turn of the year, both home and away, it, it's hard to say they'll be massively uh, influenced by the size of the pitch. I think that the, they're very well drilled at what they do. Um, and I can't, even, even if it's a, a bit different, I mean, <sighs> spoken to, about Tottenham and moving to Wembley last, last year with David Priest, and he said that as a goalkeeper, it's quite tough because the parameters are very different. So if you're aiming for a wing, for example, you're quite often going to get it wrong because you're used to... So maybe there's an element of that, but I think purely in terms of the style of football they play, um, I, I can't see why a bigger pitch would be too much of an issue. So the, the Villa-Middlesbrough semi-final, I think going into it, it, it felt a bit like six or one, half a dozen of the other, really good chance for both teams to reach the playoff final. And in the end, I think you'd have to say that, that Villa were absolutely deserving of their place and probably turned a few heads with the the professionalism in their performance of course the the experience that they have in their squad is something that that's been discussed that is always referenced when talking about Aston Villa that's really the thing that characterizes them I think they're very experienced and savvy Um, they're not full of pace but they are full of of technical quality Um, you know the the sort of players with with that mental strength that you're looking for and it and it and it played out in those semi-finals the way that they managed both games was excellent going ahead of course through a, a Yedinak set piece as we I think caught, sort of predicted uh, in our playoff semi-final chat with Dave Edwards um, set pieces were key in the first leg and, and I was at the second leg and it's always a bit of an odd scenario when the, the team who's playing at home has won narrowly away possibly not expecting to be playing the home leg defending a lead but they did so really really well and I want to focus on the positives for Aston Villa but just quickly, I, I, I left with a huge sense that Middlesbrough fans, and this is just my opinion, could and should have been really disappointed with the way that both that the team played, that the players played, but I think a lot of it came down to, to the setup and the, and the way that they approached that game coming from the top. Uh, Mr. Pulis, that there's just there's, there's clear evidence that his style of football is effective um, certainly at championship level at Premier League level as well the problem the problem really came when chasing a game the opposition Aston Villa was so comfortable with their plan A and, and the main issue is these days we see it with England at World Cups we see it Atletico Madrid do it to teams brilliantly the fullbacks are generally the team's weakest links going forward and so Aston Villa, like so many teams do, made sure they were compact through the middle, made sure that no sort of long balls were going to be knocked down and, and, and knocked down to an on-running midfielder. That was all cut off. So it was the out ball to Friend and Shotton. Except Friend and Shotton are not attacking fullbacks. They're not good on the ball. They're, they're not comfortable past the halfway line. They can't create anything themselves. They're not very good crosses of the ball. And every attack just completely died because Adoma and Snodgrass did brilliantly um, to, to quash the threat of Triore and Downing. But it was made easy for them by the fact they didn't have to worry about those fullbacks. And I think that's a big difference as well, looking at the final. Adoma and Snodgrass, huge plaudits for the way they helped shut down the wingers from Middlesbrough. But 
they're going to have to shut down the fullbacks. <laughs> so now Hutton and El Mohamedi, they're going to be one on one against Sessegnon and, and whoever plays on the right for Fulham, which which seems a bit of a movable feast. And that's where I think that it's going to be so much harder for Villa in the final. And you know, it, it's a massive test. But Yedinak was immense. Uh, Hurahan ran everywhere. He's, he, he plays a different role than we were used to at Barnsley. He, he's not on the ball very much. He, he, he's sort of box to box, but he's not exactly arriving late. You know, on the edge of the six yard box, he's more hanging outside the area. But of course, Grealish as well. Carves hewn from stone, um, ridiculous haircut that most people would never get away with. And arguably, he doesn't anyway. Um, but an absolute joy to watch the way that he carries the ball with such poise and he plays with his head up which in the championship we're just not really used to seeing um, he's he's going to have a brilliant game I'm almost sure of it and really excited to see what he could do um, you've spoken about the Fulham side of things so with Villa in mind what do you think Fulham you know having seen them and, and dealing with the threats of Derby how do you think they match up to this Villa team all, all experience all hard-nosed grit and, and determination and positioning and all that stuff yeah, it's an interesting contrast between the two teams because in, in Fulham you've got a lot of players who haven't really had their chance yet in the Premier League who we think deserve it and then you've got players for, for Villa who, who have had their chance and, and, and looking to get back there and in a way it's easy to forget the people like Snodgrass um, purely because <clears throat> he's been there and done it somewhat that doesn't make him any less of a you know, a championship powerhouse at the moment. I mean, he's a serious, serious player who, who we've got to respect and that, you know, that the likes of Kearney in this world don't necessarily, um, as good as he is and as much as, as we both adore him, I think there's a romanticism about him because he's yet to really get his chance in that league. Um, in terms of styles, I think that the man I just mentioned, Snodgrass, has a huge role to play because, I mean, you talk about um, you talk about friend and shot and not being the, the, the most comfortable on the ball. I think that's maybe a bit harsh on friend. Uh, but having said that, um, in in Adoy and uh, and Reem, Fulham have two centre backs who are unbelievably comfortable on the ball and mm. whose ball playing abilities are, are just stunning. But they're five foot ten and five foot eleven. They are both. They've both been fullbacks by by trade previously in their careers. And you feel like if Villa can can use Snodgrass's delivery to to full effect in order to not only unlock the space that they leave behind them because they play such a high line, but also get balls in the box when they do have spells of possession. That could be really, really difficult indeed. As I mentioned as well, the fact that we have Kearney, Hansen and, uh, and McDonald who'll start as a three again and they'll again play very, very, very deep. You have to think that the uh, that kind of sitting duo, the the, sit, the well, Yednat sitting and, Hura, and Hurahin running mm. is going to make it very, very difficult for them indeed to get the time and space that they, that they want to hurt people. So I hope that there might be a tactical switch for Fulham where we see at least Johansson just playing a little bit further forward and not having to drop so deep and, and have those phases of play where they're just knocking it between the three of them because I think they're going to find it much, much more difficult. I mean, they found it difficult against a very organised derby team, but I think that spine of, of, of Jednak, Chester and, and, uh, and Terry is going to make it really hard for them to, to get any space. Villa, unfortunately for them heading into this, because we saw how derby hurt Fulham to an extent and created chances on the counter. Certainly not much of a counter-attacking team, Villa. What I saw against Borough was that Snodgrass and Adoma were working back so much that uh, the outball to Graben, he was just so isolated and, and it's almost impossible to, to create something on your own when the ball goes long. Um, they, they don't necessarily have players near Graben when they win the ball. So they really are reliant on Grealish sort of carrying it through and, and, and working with the Doma generally down the left to sort of work it up the pitch. But that's where, you know, cue Aston Villa scoring a brilliant goal on the counter-attack on Saturday. But when Fulham lose it and maybe have just those two back, 
you know, they are vulnerable, but I feel like Villa aren't necessarily set up. Maybe Bruce will, will make some changes. Um, Wait, I mean, I, I wonder if it, yeah, I don't, I don't think he'll do it because I, I don't think he'll, he'll, I don't think there's a player he can drop in that in that front line. But I, I wonder. I mean, we we watched that uh, Leeds game together a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. where they played with Codger up top and, and grabbing on on the, on the wing. And I wonder if that would be a better a tactic to employ a for the counter-attacking reasons we mentioned to have a little bit more um, power in that in that uh, striker's role, and also for the reason I mentioned, where, where mm. Codger would absolutely dominate those two in the air. I'm not sure Bruce sh- as will show that the that daring, that sort of tactical daring. No, nor do I. Um, I mean, maybe I'm being harsh on friend. I watched both legs. Every time he got the ball, there, there was no point where he he did anything positive with it really going forward. So perhaps just uh, a few off days for him. But I I just thought, I suppose looking more at Shotton, basically Fabio came on in both legs for the last 20 minutes. Yeah. And, you know, he was always going to look good compared to those guys because he's technical. Um, but you, you got a sense that when he came on, suddenly Villa had a little bit more to worry about and they couldn't just say, go on, lads, give it to the, give it to the fullbacks. And, and they were. Um, what I'm excited to see, we bang on about Kearney and Grealish all the time. Kearney sort of operating in that right half space for Fulham and Grealish on the left. They're basically going to be occupying the same areas and probably at times will be picking each other up. So that'd be quite a fun sort of one-on-one battle within the game. Um, and um, uh, just last one, how do you think it's going to pan out? You, 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 it, it all points to a pretty cagey game in which Villa are going to try and break up play and as you say, desperate to, to win set pieces for Snodgrass's delivery. So do you think it'll be a, a low scorer? Yeah, I mean, obviously, classically, this game has always been very low scoring, the, the playoff final. Um, there's so much at stake. It's hard to see both teams going hell for leather straight away. Uh, I, I fear for Fulham if they do uh, go down. I, I think that Villa would be fairly... I mean, they may not score another one, as you said, that they're, they're not the, the best on the counter, but I do feel like they'll be able to set up comfortably uh, to sit on a lead. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if they spent the distance. Uh, I think that uh, a, a, having seen them both... Obviously, a lot over the last couple of weeks. I know the last couple of months. I think that a, a low-scoring game is fairly likely, and uh, I mean, an early goal would open it up. But yeah, I, I think I think we'll be seeing extra time pens. Last word, just one for the Villa fans listening. Uh, I said I'd mention Alan Hutton, and I almost forgot, but an absolute masterclass in defensive fullbackery um, from the Scottish Cafu up against Adama Traore. Traore may have completed upwards of 30 dribbles across the two legs, um, but Hutton did very, very well, ably supported by his fullback and it, uh, by his winger, and it was excellent to see that every time Adama switched wings, Hutton got the call and switched with him. I thought that was really, really funny and uh, an excellent behaviour. James Chester as well. Um, great watching him in the flesh. Just in- incredible defender, really, and-, and will certainly be in the Premier League next season, you would have thought. Uh, into League One now, where Shrewsbury came third and Rotherham came fourth. And just like the Championship, it is third v fourth. Shrewsbury overcoming Charlton. 1-0 in both legs, 2-0 on aggregate. And Rotherham and Scunthorpe was a bit messier, uh, but it was 4-2 overall over the course of the two legs. So Shrewsbury, George, is there a case that they were the most impressive semi-finalists across the three divisions? I think so. Um, and why? Well, I mean, we, we spoke before the, the playoffs about the, their, their dip in form and how they had to um, overcome that. And, and I think we've now seen it wasn't really a dip in form. It was just a bit of a rest period in order to get themselves ready for the playoffs. Um, you know, expert of, of playoff management from uh, from Paul Hurst again. Mm. They were slightly, well, I mean, not slightly. They were fortunate uh, in the second leg. Um, I think Carlton Morris definitely should have been sent off for what was a pretty outrageous uh, elbow mm. after about twenty minutes in off the ball. 
um, which was given a foul and, and, and not and no more, which was a bizarre uh, decision from from the referee. Refereeing issues you'll notice get mentioned more and more as we drop down the divisions. Yeah, yeah, naturally, um, and uh, and they also um, were lucky not to concede a penalty as well. So. For that reason, they were fairly fortunate. But having said that, I do think you probably can't complain. You know, you keep two clean sheets over two legs and, and you deserve to be there. They were, you know, clearly the third best team in the league as well. Um, and I think going into this final, back to the, the stadium in Wembley where they, they didn't turn up last time, which hopefully you'd think would, would set them in good stead for this. Um, I, I think they, they go into it in good shape. There was a, a sense when I saw that the results and, you know, us ourselves express some some fears about them having dropped out of such a tough automatic promotion battle and how would they cope and and uh, and then seeing the results 1-0 1-0 you just get the sense that you know isn't it funny that the team who spent all season limiting opposition chances winning games by one goal sometimes late in the get in the day having having shut the opposition down uh, would do that over both legs of the semi-final you know that this is they've been playing this sort of match throughout their season because that's that's how they're set up to play so um, I'm, I'm feeling quite good about them moving into the final I am that that Wembley game the Checker Trade Trophy final I was there and I have very bad memories of watching Shrewsbury try and get anything done going forward um, that the the wingers were just pretty much marked out the game and again it's that it's the isolation of, uh, of Morris or Payne up front, uh, a little bit touched on, like I did with Graben back in the Championship chat, that it upsets me because it just, you know, it, it means that, that there's no outball. But it'll be interesting against Rotherham. I, th- I think that Rotherham might be quite well matched against them. Um, and at the same time, looking at Rotherham's semi-final against Scunthorpe, I didn't get an overwhelming sense that they were definitely the better team over the two legs. Um, I, the first half of the second leg, Scunthorpe, looked electric in every sense apart from the final pass or, or, or the finish. Um, they were linking up really well and Rotherham didn't really seem to have a way of stopping um, the front four of Scunthorpe. And then having rode that wave, uh, a thumping header on the full from a long throw, which I love to see. Um, and, then, uh, and then Will Volks, who we probably don't talk about enough as a, as a goal-scoring midfielder in League One, he's proven all season that he has an excellent long shot on him and uh, a real life for goal as well as an excellent celebration and he stepped up and put it in but Rotherham were the favourites going in and they're the favourites in the final so what is it about them that even after a less convincing semi-final win uh, versus Shrewsbury's very convincing double clean sheet you know why do the bookmakers have Rotherham favourites for that game I, I don't really understand that well, I mean, I disagree with it, so I'm not sure if I'm the person who can uh, who can explain. But you're it for the odds you. man, but uh, it'll, it'll be based on on a whole manner of things, including um, you know just just general shot data of the last few last few games. Probably even factoring in the um, just the, the 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 expense and and you know quality perceived of the Rotherham squad as well compared to Shrewsbury. So you know Shrewsbury are still being seen as being overachieving. Um, but I, I mean, I, I think personally that, that Shrewsbury are probably the better, and, and we've spoken about it before um, about the about, about disappointing experiences, whether it's in playoffs or, or in um, or at Wembley. And I think that Shrewsbury will go to Wembley so much better prepared for this compared to Rotherham, having gone there you know two months ago, having been um, well beaten by a team in, the, in a lower league, having left the stadium uh, with regrets, and and I think that this time they'll they'll, they'll be there to do it right. 
It's a very uh, impressive, eye-catching front six, I think, Rotherham's front six, both in the way that they play, but also the personnel uh, for League One level. The, the midfield three of, of Matty Palmer, Richie Towell and, and Will Volks has sort of got a bit of everything there, including, you know, real technical ability for, for League One level. Uh, the, the wide men, Taylor and Williams, are... You know they, they just go all day, and uh, and obviously Michael Smith. We, we've I've had to sort of uh, rethink my view on him. I think I was quite rude about him as a replacement to Kiefer Moore in January, and and he's continued to be just as much, pretty much of a handful as uh, as Kiefer Moore was. So he, he could play a big part. Uh, but you know, sort of Ryan Woods versus that rather a midfield. It's going to be it's going to be an interesting battle in the centre midfield. I think it's fair to to note that Bryn Morris and. Ben Godfrey for Shrewsbury have stepped up massively in the absence of Abu Agogo. Um, whenever we've spoken about Shrewsbury, we've mentioned that the the worry that uh, that Shrewsbury without their talisman in midfield, Agogo, are, are a lesser team. But those two have, have more than filled the gap. So I think it's it's fair to, to note that. So the threats will come from midfield, really, uh, from, from Woods for Shrewsbury mostly, and then from the, the three I mentioned at Rotherham. And also from the wide areas, whether it's Wally or, or Rodman, um, maybe even Abo Isa. It'd be good to see him at some point, stretch his legs on, on the Wembley pitch. And uh, complete an amazing year for the Isa or Isa family. Um, Abo and Mo have been uh, one of the great stories of, of the EFL this season. And I think, you know, we bang on about Paul Hurst a lot, but, but we've also mentioned the job that Paul Warner's done to pick a club off the floor after, you know, a pretty historically bad season in the Championship last season. We know that it's not as simple as just, you know, pulling up your socks and going again. And um, he's such a, he's clearly such a popular character, both with managers across the league but also with his players. And it's one of those ones where you'd sort of, as a neutral, you'd be really happy to see either team win. Um, you know, maybe we've probably spoken about Shrewsbury more this season, spoken about Paul Hurst and the, the amazing job he's done. And that really would be quite the fairy tale. But it sounds like you fancy Shrews in this one, if you had to pick one. Yeah, spot on. I think that especially the prices, I think that they are the one I'll be siding with. There you go. I will join you. I think that Shrewsbury will complete um, the most excellent of seasons. And in League Two, it's Coventry against Exeter. I should really say Exeter against Coventry. Exeter as the higher place team. They should have that. Um, and um, Coventry overcoming Notts County. Um, fair to say they got pretty lucky. But also, once we get past the refereeing decisions put in an excellent away performance to win the second leg um, that will send them to Wembley with certainly with me looking at them slightly differently I think it's fair to say uh, in the first leg they went behind uh, to a great goal from Jonathan Fort and then levelled through um, a, a, just a bizarre penalty award that, that probably never was really uh, McNulty stuck it away and in the second leg just sort of blitzed Notts County which I don't think anyone was expecting out of the blocks uh, Biamo scored very early um, and then of course there was Plenty for Notts County and Kevin Nolan and, and their fans to, to complain about. But with McNulty and Biamu, an absolute handful. With Doyle and Kelly, the wise old heads in central midfield that we've spoken about all season. And then Bayliss, a guy who, 18-year-old Tom Bayliss, from the Coventry Academy, hadn't even played for the first team, I think, before December or January time. And is now, you know, he's the, he's basically their best player now. It's absolutely incredible, an amazing story, and he scored um, scored in the second leg as well. So they have that. What's the word? Experience from last year with the Czech Trade Trophy final. A lot of those players still there. Um, they go into it 
taking way more fans, I think it's fair to say, than Exeter. Uh, and Exeter go in with the disappointment of last year, um, but a semi-final win against a Lincoln team that it felt like everyone was kind of tipping Lincoln in that one, but Exeter overcame them. So what does that say? What does that say about them? I, I think both of these semi-final performances for different reasons are really, really impressive. Um, I think that Cov going to, to Notts County and blasting away a team full of experience um, was, was just incredibly impressive and it surprised me. And it's, it's made me, as you mentioned, look at them in a very, very different light. I think that if you told me ahead of the semis, it was going to be an extra Coventry final out of, out of, firmly been in the Exeter camp but now I'm not so sure um, but having said that you can't doubt um, the you know the, as you mentioned Lincoln very very popular indeed with, with the punters mm. and Exeter just kind of dealt with them pretty easily mm. um, you have to wonder about the, the speculation surrounding Paul Tisdale going to MK Don just being an issue Four going to one the, on I think it's five on when I looked yesterday five on yeah so um, but uh, there was speculation before the second leg and that didn't seem to affect them too much. Um, so it's, it's hard to, it's hard to kind of quantify exactly what that means, but, but, uh, this is what I'm really looking forward to. And I, and I think it's going to be, um, a great game between two teams who, who like to play football the right way. Really. I think if it had been an, a Notts County Lincoln final, we could have seen a very, very different one indeed, but, but this should be a good one for the viewer. And I wouldn't like to, I wouldn't like at the moment to, um, to, pump for either of them no no it's, it's, it's definitely a tough one to call uh, Stockley up front for Exeter showed a sort of poacher's instinct to score their opening goal but it was unbelievable individual efforts from Hiram Boteng and, uh, and from Ryan Harley that showed that Exeter you know they also as well as Coventry have these, these very talented star players um, that can hurt teams from anywhere and, and I think that you know we talk about former playoff experience and sometimes how the, uh, the team that loses the year before it feels like more often than not they go on uh, and win the, the final. So that, that's, that's our team this year. So it'll be interesting to see whether they continue that trend that we always, uh, that we always touch on. And the Tisdale rumours are, I mean, I can't work out if they're a bit odd. I, I mean, not only the timing uh, of, uh, of a bloke who's going into a playoff campaign that could see him take you know, a team that he is synonymous with into League One, not for the first time, it should be said, but for the first time in a few years, with... You know, probably for the first time in the new Exeter, the Exeter that everyone talks about as this team with incredible uh, academy, with improving facilities, uh, a team that is funding itself um, by the sale of, of, of talented young players and replacing those players at every step. Uh, and it's, it, it, it strikes me as odd that he is, as the bookies would say, looks like he's off to MK Dance. He'll be in League Two next season regardless. I, th- I think it's a good move. Personally, I mean, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of MK Dons as a club, but um, there's a few things that you can't doubt. Uh, the, the recruitment strategy will be much, much easier to get the players that he wants to bring in, whether that's geographically or financially. Um, I think that Tisdale's stock in the last year has risen back to a level where he may have been concerned it wasn't going to get to again after a poor few seasons, so he should maximise on that. Uh, he'll know better than us the level of clubs that are interested in him. I mean, it's easy for us to think he could get a bigger job, but if he's not getting in any interest from League One or Championship teams, then then at least he's going to one and waiting because there's no doubt, as we've seen, I think when when when, uh, when MK Dons got promotion from League One, I think we kind of all thought they'd probably reached about their level, bottom, bottom end of the Championship, top end of League One, and now they're back down to League Two again. Without, but the, I mean, the ambition is still there. So whilst it may not be the most romantic of uh, of moves i can see why why he would do it and uh, and as you mentioned 
he's managed Exeter in League One before, um, and I think he probably realises that, it, that it's a bit of a tough ask. And rather than have a have a season scrapping around to try and stay up in League One next season, um, he'd probably rather have another crack at promotion with a club who he could take to Championship. Probably hard to forget as well that in October of last season, um, the club's fans who, who well who who own the club basically said, okay, Paul, we think it's probably time that, that uh, this comes to an end, so we're going to serve you your notice uh, and his contract, which is up, uh, I think, in September or October of, of, of 2018. Um, and, of course, then things have gone almost universally very well since then. So um, probably very much in the back or actually maybe even the front of his mind. Uh, one last thing. Um, I was speaking to someone uh, yesterday uh, um, and a, a very much an up-and-coming manager, coach, uh, hopefully that we'll see in the EFL at some point. I, can, I can't tell you who it is because someone that we're hoping to sit down with this summer. And this is me saying to you, stay with us this summer. There's a lot planned. Um, there's a bit of time um, that, that we have, or rather that I definitely have off to, to put together, a, you know, to, to throw ourselves into a bit more Entity 20 stuff, um, stuff that's a, a bit different to the norm and hopefully some interesting stuff. But this bloke said, and I quote, and he's worked a, across all three divisions as a coach, he said, Paul Tisdale's the best manager I've ever worked with. And that's ringing in my ears. So I'm picking Exeter for this one. And you said you didn't want to pick I don't, anyone. I don't, I this, I, yeah, draw, draw and distance, I reckon. It's going to be an... Excellent weekend. The Football League playoffs have always been, for us anyway, pretty much the most exciting thing in the football calendar. Um, we hope that you have enjoyed listening to our preview. Um, do send us a tweet at NTT20Pod. We'd love to hear from fans of the teams involved, how they're feeling, what their predictions are, but also um, like-minded spectators like us who have, who have watched the playoffs, who have tracked these teams all season. Let us know what you think. Um, it'd be really interesting to see what the general thought process is on our Instagram yesterday, also at NTT20pod. Uh, we did a few polls and Fulham, Shrewsbury and Coventry were the listeners' picks. So uh, we will review the playoff finals next time we talk and there'll be plenty more to talk about, not least Gary Rowett to Stoke and many, many other exciting topics. Thanks for sticking with us at NTT20pod and until next time, goodbye.